0: Welcome back to another episode of Financers. On the podcast today, we have myself, Matt Stead. I am a financial advisor at Suchetta Callahan. Eric Sachetta financial advisor. And my Callahan partner here is Suchetta Callahan. And today, we wanted to do something a little different. Um, we've all been reading an interesting book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It came out fairly recently, what, last,
1: what? Yeah, about a month ago.
0: About a month ago. and. We're all pretty interested in what he had to say, and it kind of gets away from what we normally talk about, like pure financial topics, into a little more of the psychology of how some of these things work. So,
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot lately is just the idea that behavioral finance is is going to be a big area of financial planning going forward, right, which is not just looking at the dollars and cents answers of every question that we're asked, but more the kind of the psychological impact of certain things, you know, people ask us all the time, should I pay off my mortgage? You know, it's one of those things where there's a financial answer that you can come up with, but that isn't necessarily the right answer for every person because some people don't mind having the debt and will live just fine. And other people, even though financially they might come out slightly better off, they're also going to lose sleep for the next 15 years while they have that debt hanging over their heads. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it might make more sense to go with the the emotional answer as opposed to the financial answer. So you know like i say every every decision that we make has a behavioral component to it and kind of understanding how people approach money psychologically is is extremely important
0: and the trick is making those two the the psychological side and the financial side sort of work in tandem and, and it's almost like a tricky balancing act
1: oh absolutely and you know like anything else i think for for people themselves it it it's good to understand why you feel a certain way right? Is you kind of have reactions to money in different ways, whether it's investing or, or just financial decisions in general. And it's good to kind of understand like, what's the, why do I feel that way? And, and you can make a more rational decision if you kind of understand the background of why you're having a certain reaction and that it's not a crazy reaction
0: or, or whatever it is. Right. And so much of that and in, in kind of jumping into the book itself is the background that you grew up with, with, you know, how you, how you dealt with finances, how you view finances everybody grew up in a different era a different family financial situation there's so many different factors that go into it and they all sort of culminate to to a point where this is how you see the financial world but everybody sees it in such a different way and that's why it's hard for people to understand why something that might seem rational for one person makes no sense for another person
1: yeah and I think the prime example of that is just you know like like he talks about in the book is people who grew up during the depression, are always going to be more financially conservative than people that grew up in the 90s, you know, when the stock market went up 18% a year or whatever, whatever it did. And, you know, it's just the, the, your relationship with money is totally different when you lived through a period where every penny was scarce versus, you know, money was a little more easily, easy to come by, um, you know, and that just shapes the rest of your life. And, and there's really no convincing yourself otherwise, you know, we can give you as many examples as we want of why that isn't the right approach, but that doesn't change your psych- psychology around it. Right.
2: I think one of the things, too, is financial advisors now are also financial coaches because you're you're trying to help all different people and all different clients that have come from these different backgrounds that are going to look at the same information in a different way. And part of the job of any financial advisor or financial coach is to let their clients know that they are not crazy for having these thoughts and actually calling just to get reassurance and to look at the look at their financial plan and talk about some of these biases and different things like we're talking about um, based on different people's backgrounds. I think it's important because one of the reasons you know, people get themselves into uh, trouble with their own thinking is... They do think they're crazy, right? But if, if the people that you're working with that are helping you in your financial life tell you this is something that makes sense, you're not crazy, then you're going to take the steps to to stay the course.
0: Yeah, that's with anything, right? Finances aside, it's talking something out with somebody always makes you feel better about it afterwards because you get that second input in, and maybe you consult somebody who's a little more well-read in that area in that, you know, it like you said, it makes you feel like you're either justified in the way that you're thinking or kind of helps you maybe say, well, maybe I should think about it in this way instead.
1: Yeah. Like I say, I mean, think about how many times when the market goes down, like back in March, how many times we get emails from clients essentially saying, I know what you're going to say. I just need you to say it. Yeah. Right. And, and on the face of it, that almost sounds, it doesn't sound crazy. It's just, it's, if you know what I'm going to say, why do you need me to say it to you? And it's because of that, right? Because it's like, psychologically you just need that reassurance that yes, I'm gonna say the same thing I always say. No, it is not different this time. Yes, my you know, the the market is gonna recover. You know, so it's it's just that that psychological reassurance that I mean everybody has it. Whether whether they all call us or not, they all probably feel the same way. Right.
2: I think one of the other things too is people thinking that um whether it's how much money they make or their earning potential is going to determine their financial outcome of their lives versus what do you actually do with the money that you have? So, you know, in this book, they do discuss probably the most extreme example, right? So they talk about someone who has a a tech executive that makes all kinds of money and ends up blowing it versus somebody who was a janitor that saved throughout their entire career and ended up with millions of dollars at the end of their lives now obviously making more money gives you an advantage but only if you put those same steps in place to be able to save you 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 can't make enough money where you automatically end up with a lot of money in the future if you just raise your expenses along with it so that extreme example just kind of shows you that Um, it's the habits that determine your outcome, not necessarily how much money you make. Right.
1: Yeah. And you know, the, the, another, another kind of topic that he talks about in the book that I think is, is makes sense here is, is just the idea of, of luck and risk, right? Is that, you know, everybody has this kind of idea that luck doesn't play a part in investing or or anything like that. And it really does. I mean, like you say, it's, it's a lot of it is when you were born, right? If you were born in the depression, your, your investment results were totally different than if you were born in the late 80s and started investing in the 90s. Um, you know, And the story he tells in the book is a, is an interesting one that if, if you look at Bill Gates, obviously he was extremely smart and founded Microsoft and went on and, and became a billionaire. But when he was in high school, he happened to go to, I think, the only high school yeah. in the area that had a computer. Mm-hmm. And it just happened that, that one of the teachers Thought it was so important, so much of the future that they, they raised money and bought a computer for this school. Had he gone to any other school in the area, he would not have seen a computer in high school. And, you know, just that one little turn of events completely changed his whole life. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting that your entire lifetime can be influenced by these small little instances of luck and, on the flip side, risk, right? I, kind of part of the same story one of Bill Gates' best friends in high school, who was the third person with him and Paul Allen that would have gone on to found Microsoft, died in a mountaineering accident. And, you know, again, the odds that somebody that age is going to die in a mountaineering accident are almost nothing, but, you know, that's what happened. So it's, you, you don't want to place too much emphasis on skill or, you know, not, not everything is skill, I guess is the point, is that, Luck and risk play a huge part in investing outcomes and just outcomes of life in general.
0: It's interesting too, another point that he made there was luck and risk in how you look at them for for yourself versus another person. Like say if somebody takes a makes a risky move in and, and fails, right? You look at that person and said, Wow, they mustn't have had the skills or, or the proper training or whatever. they they were bad at whatever they were doing and that's why they failed. But if you take a, a high risk um, thing, you know, investing or, or, or otherwise, and you fail, you just say, oh, it was just bad luck.
1: Yeah, and like you said, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's also the point to which you take risk, right? Is everybody kind of looks at investing and, and thinks the idea is always to get the best, po- the highest rate of return. You know, and from a financial planning standpoint, that's not really the goal, right? The goal is to get the right rate of return for your situation and reduce the risk as much as we possibly can. Because, sure, you could increase the risk, and everybody has this idea that risk mean, more risk means more return. And it doesn't directly mean that, right? It means the more risk you take, the more possible outcomes there are, good and bad. Mm. So what can be a good thing on the upside if everything goes your way because you're taking more risk can also be a bad thing if things go against you, right? It can mean you run out of money earlier or whatever it is.
2: I also think, you know, I, I had listened to another set of financial tapes and um, I forget who the person was, but the, the gist of the story was about that you never really win in finances until you diversify. Because like the same thing, like if you go to a, if you go to a casino and you say, I'm only going to bet this 20 bucks and then you win 100 bucks. And then you just bet the hundred bucks on the next hand and you lose it all you leave with nothing and the story was that there was this um guy who started a business in his 20s he grew it to like a hundred million dollars he sold it he took every dollar that went when that he got out of it built another business by the time he was in his 70s he had built and sold like seven or eight successful businesses he was a billionaire he was dominating his industry and it was around the time where technology really became a big thing and out of nowhere, one of these companies completely wiped out his entire billion-dollar um, company. And at something like 70 or 80 years old, he was worth like a negative billion dollars. And this guy, if we were playing sports, was his record was 8-1 or he had won every year except for this last year. And yet he had less money than any person out there because he didn't follow the one principle of, Maybe you have a big hit at some point, but until you diversify and limit that risk and the, the different outcomes like you were talking about, um, you're never really you know, financially secure.
0: I mean, and that ties into another topic, too. For so many people, it just seems like there's never enough. And, you know, that story is, is a, huge, uh, or a huge explainer of that. It's like that dude was 70 years old. He had billions of dollars. He could have done anything he wanted, just sit back, relax. He could have snapped his fingers and had anything. But it just, for him, it just wasn't enough. And there's another story in this book about Bernie Madoff, who everybody knows him as the the person that ran that Ponzi scheme. And most people don't know that before that, he ran a legitimate, successful business. And was making money hand over fist, but I, again, I, it wasn't enough. I,
2: I think actually, the whole time part of their business was legitimate, wasn't it? It was yeah, only the yeah, part. It was, the it was only the part that he was in complete control of with one other guy that was illegitimate. The rest of it was legitimate the whole time, which is crazy. Right? And,
1: and was wildly successful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, 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 on its own, he would have been a billionaire yeah. <laughs> just running that business. But, but and, again, to your point, it's you know, and and he talks about in the book, it's it's. It's the fact that no matter what situation we're in, we compare ourselves to other people in a similar situation, not to the general public. So, you know, a baseball player who makes half a million dollars a year is is doing just fine by any any standard that you want to use, unless you compare him to other baseball players who make many, many multiples of, of what he makes. So the Bernie Madoff situation, he might have been a billionaire, but he's comparing himself to other billionaires. Right. There's always someone that has more than you. And the hardest trick in finance or in in being happy, I guess in general is to stop the goalposts from moving and just figure out what you want out of life and try to try to achieve that, you know, and and not always kind of once you achieve something, set enough, change it to something better and something bigger and something more, right? Because you're never going to get there. I mean, there, there's as I said, there's always somebody with more. There's always something else you could want, and you know, there's only so much money,
2: especially if especially if your plan says that you can do everything that you want to do. So now if you're trying to take more risk, you're not doing it for any reason that's going to actually benefit you in, in any way. Yes, you could potentially end up with more money by taking more risk, but if you're in a situation where you're going to be able to achieve and do all the things you want to do, to me the the trade-off doesn't really work and helping clients and individuals actually identify that is one of the most important things that a financial advisor can do
0: yeah for sure and eric touched on one point earlier of how we can do this and that's through diversification but the other huge tool in your toolkit is through compounding um and that was again another one of the chapters that Housel wrote about just the power of compounding and how Warren Buffett today is not as rich as he is primarily through making the best investment choices. It's because he started investing when he was 10 years old, 10 years old. And he, he just, it just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling. And maybe I know Mike's flipping through the book now. So maybe he has the, the exact numbers of, of when Buffett became the Buffett it. we know today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's basically, he says, as he, at the time he wrote the book, of Warren Buffett was worth $84.5 billion. $81.5 billion of that came after his 65th birthday. Yeah. Right. So the, the vast majority of his wealth came after his 65th birthday. Right? And like you said, because it's the way compounding works, right? The, the bulk of the gains happen at the end. Because that it's just how it happens, right? It's snowball it, running down the hill. Yeah, it does, it's not impressive to turn a hundred dollars into two hundred or two hundred into four hundred, but it is impressive to turn, you know, one million into two million or two million into four million, or in Warren Buffett's case, eighty-four billion.
0: And I don't think that's intuitive for most people because you know, just in everyday life, we we think of things going up in some sort of linear fashion, but for compounding interest, that's not the case. It's exponential. So as you get further to the end or further to the goalpost, essentially, it it accelerates a lot quicker than it was at the beginning. And that's why, you know, it's hard at the beginning because, you know, you're, you're saving this money for retirement and yeah, it's going up, but it's not like killing it, you know, and you're not seeing these huge numbers on your, on your statements at the end of every month. But as you get closer and as you let that money sit there and, and just work, that's when you start seeing the true payoff.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it is amazing. And you know, that, that's kind of why a lot of people kind of get off track with investing early on. Because like Matt said, it's when you first start out, the investing piece is not the important part. The saving piece is the important part, right? Is figuring out how you can save and, and saving that money year after year, month after month, is, is the most important thing you can possibly do. Picking the investments is not that big a deal because like you say, i mean if you have $1000 and you make 10% well you made 100 bucks like it's not going to change your life but making sure that you are you keep doing it and you stay on track and year after year you add to it and add to it and add to it that that compounding is going to add up over time and you are going to see the success down the road it's just we're not programmed as human beings to wait right, right. We're, we there was a study that actually talked about how when we talk about ourselves As in the future, it's as though we're talking about somebody else, right? We we have no connection with our future self. So asking somebody to give up money today to help themselves 30 years from now is just not what our brains are wired to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was mentioning before we started here, there was another uh, book I'm reading that he talks about a study where um, they looked at people's brains when they offered them either a $15 gift card today or a $20 gift card two weeks from now. And the actual chemical reaction in your brain is completely different for the $15 today. And and it's much more significant and it's much more rewarding for, in the reward center of your brain than than the $20 two weeks from now because we're just not wired to be excited about things in the future. You know, right. which, and it's it's interesting. I mean, as human beings, we are just completely wired wrong to be good investors. Yeah. Everything about us sabotages I, we just us want as investors.
0: Instant gratification and in- I- that's that's tough when you're when you're saving money for you know when you turn sixty five and you're twenty five. Well, it's everything. I mean, it's
1: it's the delayed gratification. It's the the fact that we experience losses twice as much as we experience gains, right? Because you know, just think about evolution, right? Is the, the those of our ancestors that survived were the ones that reacted to risk the fastest, right? So we're just we've evolved to view risk significantly worse than we than we view reward.
0: Mm. Well,
2: one of the things, though, is people then hear this and say, "Well, is the fact that I came from such and such a background or grew up in such an era, uh, era, am, am I going to have to like somehow change my thinking and all this stuff?" But the one way that you can kind of combat that is to automate your investment so that you know money goes into your 401k or IRA automatically. You have money go into another savings account so that you actually could have a person that is somebody who's a perpetual spender, they love to spend. And if the only thing that ends up in their bank account is the money that they could blow out of their budget each month, you actually don't have to, they don't have to consciously change that habit. They just need to set up those automatic savings and then what's in their account, they actually could still have the same habit if you if you get what I mean.
1: No, that's exactly right. Is you just take the you take the painful part out of the process, right? right? The painful part is looking at the money, saying I'm not going to spend this and moving it into some sort of investment. If you automate that so that you never even see it, then you don't have to make that painful decision. It's just it's made for you, and um, you know it, it, Vanguard did a study a, a number of years ago about where financial advisors add value for clients. And everybody kind of has this idea that it's like, oh, they picked the best investments. And that actually wasn't it, right? They, they calculated that on average, having a financial advisor adds around just over 3% a year to your rate of return over time. The biggest area where the value is added is behavioral coaching, right? It's convincing you not to sell when the market's down. It's convincing you that you should save. It's convincing you that, you know, slow and steady does win the race and trying to pick the right stocks is not the right answer it's it's about a a reasonable return compounding over a long period of time like all the stuff that we kind of preach to our clients is where the vast majority of that additional return comes from you know which is not even something people think about when they think about whether they need a financial advisor or not
0: right and i think that was why we were also drawn to this book when it first came out and we were all excited about is because that is so many of the things that he discusses in here what we talk about on a daily basis and it's kind of just reaffirming you know what we already tell our clients and it's a fantastic book so if you if you want to go out and get it again it's the psychology of money by morgan housel um and there is a lot more to to bite off and digest in this so you know we're probably going to do a few more episodes on it but for now i I think i think we're going to wrap it up for today to stay around that 20 minute mark but we will see you on the next one
2: Fine Answers is produced and edited by
1: Sachetta & Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com
2: forward slash fine answers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S.
0: Thanks for listening.